0: Hello, and welcome back to 7 Knots, a bi-weekly podcast about connecting community with science. My name is Sheree Janet Sosi, and I'm a Navajo from the West Side. My clans are Sedishkishnishli, Tachitni, Bashishchin, and Kia'ani Dashuche. My guest this week is Nick Moskovitz, an assistant astronomer at the Lowell Observatory. We talk about new directions for astronomy, and how observing the skies can change the way we react to small bodies and near-Earth asteroids. Let's go ahead and jump right into the interview.
1: So my name is Nick Moskowitz. I'm an astronomer here at Lowell Observatory. Um, we have about a dozen astronomers on staff and uh, we all work in different areas of astronomy. My area of expertise is in small bodies in the solar system, so studying asteroids and comets and meteors and meteorites, all the things that kind of come close to the earth. and um, have a direct connection to uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the origin of the earth and the evolution of the earth as a planet.
0: Nice. Um, I heard a talk from you with the uh, astronomy on tap about a week ago or so and that's mm-hmm. how I met you. Is um, mm-hmm. that something that you do regularly or is that something that only happens every so often?
1: Well, I mean we... Yeah. Like any researcher, we get asked occasionally to do public talks and public presentations, and Astronomy on Tap is just a fun one, so um, I'm sure the audience there would not want to hear me more than once a year at most, (laughs) and so um, it was sort of my turn, and uh, we decided that August would be a good time to talk about near-Earth asteroids, and uh, in particular because uh, the Perseid meteor shower. Uh, was just coming up at that time. And so it was sort of a good time to focus on that that topic. And so myself and one of my colleagues gave the Astronomy on Tap talk uh, earlier this month. Um, but I, I like public talks. I think it's a really um, important part of sort of an astronomer's um, obligation uh, to... You know, share the sort of excitement that we have for our research and hopefully teach people something a little bit about what we're learning about the cosmos and uh, what it is we do to, to um, gain new insights into the origins and evolution uh, questions about the, our planet, the solar system, the galaxy, the universe. Uh, big questions that all of us like to ask.
0: Yeah. So, with, uh, with, studying asteroids that fall down into the earth there's a lot that goes into it i mean there's a bunch of different subjects so some of it's like how it affects the dinosaurs some of it is does is there a portion of it that talks about what we deal with day to day and aside from like the mythical big asteroid that will sure. may or may not hit
1: us. So you're right. the The field of asteroids is asteroid study and sort of planetary astronomy in general is huge, um, and it's not. You know, there's no way one person could do it all. Um, the thing. There's a few things that are exciting about it to me. Uh, one is that even 50 years ago, asteroid science was not even really a thing. Asteroids were just kind of viewed as oddities that got in the way of other more serious areas of astronomy. And it was uh, in the sort of mid-70s that uh, a handful of people in the community um, really sort of realized the interest and the potential to study asteroids and what how powerful they could be to teach us about things that uh, we can't learn by studying other objects. So uh, it's a new field, which means there's all kinds of new things to be learning all the time. And the sort of work that I'm involved in tends to focus on uh, observations of asteroids because I'm an observer here at an observatory, so that would make sense. Um, But I'm really interested in sort of their basic physical properties. You know, what are these things made of? How big are they? How many of them are there? Uh, What are their shapes and sizes? Those those types of things that we can study and get at with telescopic data sets. Um, there are others in the community that are involved in other areas of this. Uh, theoretical studies of asteroids, understanding uh, using sophisticated computer models, um, how they formed, how they got to be what they are, what's going on on the surfaces and the interiors of asteroids now. And There's,
0: the the main purpose of that would be to just study how overall, I'm mean, assuming, study how the universe kind of got, got together by studying small bodies. You study sure. bigger bodies or just you're interested in asteroids themselves. Sure. So, I mean...
1: Astro- the, the thing about asteroids that makes them so power, uh, such a powerful laboratory, mm-hmm. is that they represent uh, the conditions in the solar system four and a half billion years ago. Mm-hmm. So these are literally the the uh, remnant fragments of the planetary formation process. So we think that you know four and a half billion years ago the solar system was filled with asteroids, and or the the ancient equivalent of asteroids, and that those many of those uh, sort of got sucked up and accumulated into what we know today as the major planets um, and what we see today are the sort of leftover fragments of that process and they've been sitting out in space for four and a half billion years more or less unchanged. Asteroids don't have wind and weather and uh, you know, plate tectonics or any of the other things that cause the surfaces of planets to change over time. So for that reason, we by looking at asteroids and studying them, it's our, our best window into what was going on as the solar system was forming, before there were even planets in the solar system. Um, and because they've been unchanged, they, they also um, provide great insight into what has been going on in the solar system since the planets formed. So what type of collisions have happened how often things collide with one another they provide a record of all of that and so by studying them we get insight into times that we could never access otherwise Um, so that's really the the driving motivation for me to to study asteroids and understand them in the context of our our solar system Um, yeah i don't know if that got to your question no Um, yeah
0: thank you i was it was like wait we're we're getting bigger i need to go smaller for a second here so i appreciate that um uh, so you mentioned, you're talking about just studying the how often they've come by, studying mm-hmm. the type. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? What other things?
1: Right. I mean, a big part of what the community, the asteroid community is involved with is Uh, keeping track of objects, right? Particularly if we're talking about the sort of planetary impact hazard, which is something that uh, gets a lot of attention. Uh, People want to track asteroids so that we understand what sort of impact hazard they may or may not pose to the Earth. And one way to uh, deal with that problem is to just discover and track asteroids. And so there's a large segment of the asteroid community that goes out and tries to discover objects and keep track of them over time. Um, and we're getting very good at that. It really has turned into an almost industry, uh, largely driven by uh, funding from NASA. Um, NASA is responsible for 90 plus percent of all asteroid discoveries in the world, uh, or at least NASA funded programs are. Uh, and so uh, that's, that's a, a significant... 90 uh,
0: percent. 90 plus percent. I mean, NASA <laughs> well, is
1: the, the major contributor to the discovery of all asteroids in the solar system. And we're getting ridiculously good at it. Uh, uh, thousands of new asteroids are redisco- being discovered every month. Right. And that number is just continuing to climb as new technologies and new telescopes and new capabilities are coming online. Um, and, the, and the more we discover, the more we know about, which means we're able to start keeping track of them and hopefully eliminating uh, the potential for any impact risk. And
0: what, what is the potential for an impact risk of yeah, the, uh, asteroids? Sure. Big I mean, and small.
1: Sure. There's always uh, uh, an impact risk out there. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier the sort of dinosaur impact, and we know that the dinosaurs got wiped out, or at least something that contributed to their, their extinction was a large asteroid impact around 65 million years ago. That was probably a body five or six miles across, so this was a huge asteroid. Uh, the chances of us getting hit by something like that um, today are exceedingly low, uh, you know, sort of win the lottery multiple times low, right? And so it's not something we really need to worry actively about. I think the programs are in place to discover objects like this and if we do discover one of those, there will be significant lead time before the actual impact that we could do something about it. We could launch spacecraft of various sorts and try to deflect these out of this hazardous object and move it away from an impact trajectory. So that's very encouraging in the sense that you know humanity is at this point where we could prevent uh, a natural disaster like that, which uh, killed the, killed off the dinosaurs or contributed to killing off the dinosaurs. Um, so, well, on the other side of things, though, there are much smaller asteroids—not five miles across, but you know much smaller, you know hundreds of feet across—and we see those impact um, rarely, but that does happen. Uh, It helps that the Earth is 70% uh, covered in oceans, so the chances are that if something comes in, it's going to hit over the ocean. And a 100-foot or 200-foot body hitting over the ocean is not going to be catastrophic. Um, Where we could run into problems, if you had a body of that size coming in and impacting over a major city, for example. And So there is some concern about that. Um, Those size objects uh, can sneak through our sort of telescopic surveys that are trying to find objects like that, and it has happened in the past. Um, One of the more recent uh, high-profile examples was in 2013 uh, when a uh, 15 to 20 meter size body, um, so sort of 40, 50 feet across, uh, came in and impacted over Chelyabinsk, Russia. And uh, that asteroid ended up exploding in the atmosphere, uh, and the shockwave from that explosion damaged buildings and broke windows and caused a fair bit of uh, injuries on the ground, about a 1,000 1,000 to 1,500 people ended up in the hospital from that event.
0: That's right. It was one of the more documented ones as well, because Russia was, they have, have all the cams on the front, so it's an easy one to look up for sure.
1: That's right, yeah. So, I mean, Russia has a lot of dashboard cameras on their cars. The event happened around, I think, 9 in the morning. So, it was the kind of thing where there are a lot of people out on the roads driving around. They have all these dashboard cams, and it turned out to be a very well documented event. So, there's a lot of footage out there. Um, and it, the fact that it was over a populated area. Okay. Um, uh, most of the earth again, is not populated. It's either covered oceans or um, very rural. Um, and so uh, all those things all contributed to it being this particular red being very well documented and we have a lot of data and uh, people are still analyzing those data to understand you know, how big was the actual impactor before it, it exploded in the atmosphere and things like that.
0: So that was the one the thing that was impressive to me during your talk is that you were talking about how how you measure. The amount of energy of that impact. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And it was huge amounts yeah. of energy. Can you um, talk a little bit about sure. how you measure that? Sure. So that?
1: The, the energies we're talking about here are huge. And, and, and it's hard to even wrap your head around. And the, the basic reason the energies are so large is because the impact velocity or the impact, impact speed is so high. Mm-hmm. Uh, typical impact speeds for a, a, an asteroid on the Earth can be tens of thousands of miles per hour. That's really fast, right? So fast, and it's even you know it's hard for us to even you know comprehend those types of speeds. So you have these things coming in at an incredibly high velocity. They slam into the atmosphere, which um, even though the atmosphere to us feels um, uh, fluid or um, you know doesn't provide a lot of resistance, when you're talking about such high speeds, these asteroids instantly hit the atmosphere and start heating up dramatically to thousands of degrees, and that. That um, that heating is due to friction with the atmosphere as the asteroid comes in. It heats up. Frictional heating causes the thing to more or less start vaporizing, and um, uh, that process causes fragmentation, which manifests as uh, explosions. And it's a very you know energetic event. Um, the actual measurement of those energies is a really interesting area that people try to understand in better detail and I would say it's, a, it's an open area of research. We have some mm-hmm. techniques that work well, others that don't work as well. Um, uh, one way of doing that is to simply, if you, you can have video footage of a meteor coming in, you can see how bright it gets and you can try to say well the object got this bright and we can then try to map that brightness to an energy. We can uh, apply uh, equations to to try to convert what we see visually, the brightness that we see visually, to an energy uh, uh, released in the atmosphere. Um, For big events like Chelyabinsk, that was such a big uh, impact that it actually produced acoustic waves in the atmosphere. You have a massive explosion in the atmosphere and those acoustic waves propagate outwards. So it's essentially sound waves in the atmosphere that propagate. And uh, uh, there are uh, acoustic wave monitoring systems distributed around the globe uh, that were installed during the Cold War to, to look for nuclear blasts. But those systems are still running and are actually very good at recording large meteor impact events. Um, so when a meteor comes in, it produces these acoustic waves, which are picked up by these, they're called infrasound stations, and you can measure essentially the height of those acoustic waves, and that tells you something about the energy that was deposited when this thing exploded. So that's an alternative way. Um, there are also... Um, systems that uh, are sort of referred to in the community as U.S. government sensors. And so these are downward-looking satellites that are in orbit around the Earth looking down on the surface of the Earth to be monitoring things that the U.S. government is interested in monitoring. And they pick up uh, meteor explosions in the atmosphere. And they have ways of uh, inferring what the energy is uh, from these impacts. So for typical of that big events, you'd have multiple detections, you'd have your acoustic waves, you'd have your U.S. government sensors, you may have your dashboard cams, and you try to stitch all those data together to produce at least a consistent story that says, well, we think that this particular impact was a 10 kiloton or a 100 kiloton or whatever it may have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully those answers are consistent but as I said they're, they're, this is an active area of research and people are still trying to figure this out and so you may get slightly different answers from each of these techniques and how to calibrate them against one another is, a, is an area of interest for sure
0: And so how, how good do you handle all that data because during your talk you were talking was you were the one after you that was talking about um, how when you first started to research uh, meteors, you would just like hand draw maps and things like that of where they were going. And now, nowadays it's starting to be a little bit more about uh, just computers processing massive, massive amounts of data. So um, is that just where it's going or will there always be a certain group of people that can do what they can do with their own eyes?
1: That's right. I mean, one of the things that's attractive to me about meteor and asteroid science is it's something that, Um, No matter what equipment you have, you can participate in it, right? Mm -hmm. In the sense that, you know, you could could go out tonight and you would see meteors here in Flagstaff where it's nice and dark and you could, you know, sit out on your back and look up at the sky and you'd see meteors uh, throughout the night. So it's something you don't even need instruments to be involved in. You can do, you know, do experiments with your eyes. And that's really where the meteor field had been for many, many years. It was visual observers out there, you know, recording meteors as they come in one at a time. But, you know, technology enables so much more. And that's really where all areas of astronomy are pushing is into um, using uh, next generation cameras and equipment to uh, record massive amounts of data. And by massive, I mean, you know, many tens of gigabytes per night. T- amount of data right and you,
0: you guys mentioned something was like a gigaton which is like or something a lot, or what was it a, a
1: petabyte maybe a petabyte a that petabyte, was the yeah. one yeah so i mean the, these next generation surveys that are coming online are producing gigabytes yeah. and potentially petabytes of data That's um uh, which is you start to get um to the point where you have so much data in hand, there's no way a human or even many humans could put their eyes on all of the data that had been collected, if you're talking about imagery or video. There's just no way you could do that. So you have to come up with clever ways for computer software and for computers to be able to process these data and pull out the things that are most interesting. Um, whether it's you know, the most interesting meteors or asteroid detections or any other area of astronomy you may be interested in, you have to come up with uh, clever computer systems that can handle processing 50 gigabytes of data and then only showing you the, 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 the most interesting results from all of that. And so that's an area of astronomy that every, every part of every branch of astronomy is dealing with this, this transition to sort of what we call the big data era where uh, we need to rethink how we're going to be doing our science. Now with that said, there's always going to be those one-off events that are really interesting, whether it's a gravitational wave going off, or a supernova explosion, or a new exoplanet that's been discovered, or a, a big impact like Chelyabinsk over Russia. Those one-off events are always going to get lots of attention because they're special events They can teach us a great deal. They can test and push all of our models in ways that they've never done before. So those single events are always going to require detailed investigation, You know the, the hand calculation aspect of this where you're working on you know, analyzing that one event, that one part of the data. Um, but you don't have any hope of capturing those one-off events unless you have these systems out there that are constantly monitoring and constantly collecting those gigabytes or petabytes um, of data uh, at once. So um, we're getting to that point where we won't be missing those unusual events. They will always be recorded because we have these systems online that are always collecting the huge amounts of data and then we essentially mine those data for for these one-offs or or particularly interesting things that uh, happen to be captured because we were watching.
0: It's incredible.
1: <laughs> uh, it's a, it's a paradigm change and it's a paradigm change because of um, computer technology has pushed so so rapidly to allow us to actually have hard drives that would allow us to record you know 50 gigabytes, 100 gigabytes, you know a terabyte of data per night. you yep. know that's the kind of thing we can do now. it's because computer technology has come so far even in the past 10 years.
0: So with with astronomy moving to this like, huge mind-blowing arena of data Mm. and everything else where does the everyday person get to Mm. connect with it i mean obviously the observatory has a lot of programs where people can come up um, and just learn about astronomy itself do you guys have any programs for just citizen science type things you know
1: it's something we've talked a lot about and it's not something we've ever done in large in in a huge effort and i think there's interest here um it's 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 a matter of finding the right project, um, defining that project, and providing access to data that would allow citizen science to, to, to sort of take root. In the past, Lowell has done um, um, uh, sort of, uh, sort of mini-research projects with small groups of interested amateurs. So you know, I might have a project that would benefit from the use of a backyard telescope if somebody had it. 14 inch celestron or something in their backyard. They could go out, collect observations, and I could work with that person to, to do, um, you know, carry out research uh, with those data. Uh, and that's, but that's been kind of, you know, sort of almost grassroots and tends to be fairly small numbers. So definitely not in the sort of citizen science realm where you're, you know, engaging thousands of people uh, yeah. to, to um, deal with these large amounts of data. Um, there are groups around the world that are definitely involved in those kind of things. Uh, Galaxy Zoo is maybe one of the best known examples of a citizen science project, one of the first um, citizen science projects where people were able to look at and um, categorize galaxies that were detected by the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. So they're out there. Um, and I think it's one of these things that you know, as we have more and more data, we're going to have to figure out ways to, to process them. And citizen science is a great great opportunity to engage people in the research process and uh, potentially you know, find things that would have been missed by the sort of automatic um, computer algorithms um, or uh, even the astronomers who may not necessarily be looking in the right place in these huge amounts of data. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Well, thanks for that. Um, yeah. Is there anything, I always try to end these with uh, events that you or your uh, the Lowell Observatory has coming up. Do you have anything anything to plug on that in? Um,
1: sure. I mean, there's always, there's always exciting things going on up here, and that's one of the reasons I like being up at Lowell. Um, on the public program front, we have uh, a lot of construction going on right now with new facilities going to be opening up over the next month or two, which are going to make a big difference in terms of the public experience coming up here. There's going to be Uh, several state-of-the-art telescopes coming online that uh, people are going to be able to come and look through and uh, that's going to really change the sort of nighttime viewing experience for people so that's going to be exciting. I think our grand opening is around the uh, beginning of October for for these new telescopes and the new observation deck that's going in. Um, On uh, the research side of things there's always always more research to be done than we possibly have time to do. Um, one of the things we're all getting excited about is uh, about a year from now, um, in June of, of 2020, there's going to be a very large conference here in Flagstaff. Uh, called. It's a, every, every three years this conference is held, it's called Asteroids, Comets, and Meteors. And so the topic of the conference is on asteroids, comets, and meteors. Go figure. Go figure, yeah. And uh, so Flagstaff last hosted this conference in 1993, and we're hosting it again next year. Uh, that will bring anywhere from four to 600 planetary scientists from around the world to Flagstaff uh, for a week-long conference. And so it's you know, one of the bigger conferences in our community. Um, so we're starting to ramp up planning for that because this is not something you kind of just do <laughs> on a whim there's a lot of planning and uh, organization yes. that needs to take place so that's going to be a very exciting time and we're discussing now about how you know the opportunity of uh, so many uh, planetary scientists coming into town next summer um, could be used to really engage the Flagstaff community as a whole you know in, in terms of uh, and you not not only highlighting what Flagstaff area researchers are doing, but the, the entire planetary science community. And so uh, we're thinking about public events and things like that that, that could be uh, connected to that conference. So nice. that's that's something that will be kind of exciting. It's still a year off, but uh, uh, you got to start planning early for these things. Oh,
0: man, it'll be gone before you know it. I know, no <laughs> kidding. Yeah. yeah. I don't think last month even happened. It was just kind of skipped over. That's right. It. And that's we made right. it immediately into August. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so. Well, thanks for uh, talking with me. It was really interesting stuff. All right, my um, pleasure. We'll have this up and running soon.
1: Okay, cool. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming
0: in. Yeah, Yeah. a handshake. Sure. (laughs) No one can see it, but we'll do it anyways. That's right, that's right. (laughs) And there you have it. That was the interview with Nick Moskovitz. Uh, if you guys are interested in learning more about what the low of Zori is up to, I will post all the links in the episodes as usu- in the episode notes as usual. Um, moving forward, ne- in the next two weeks, I will have another episode set up uh, and running. Uh, that should be with Shandine Talman. And then after that, we'll have a couple of bonus episodes as I take a hiatus for a couple of months to make more content. Um... Please post reviews in the notes. Uh, Say hello to me on the Facebook page. And um, thank you again for listening. Hope you all have a good day out there.